Well, again, good morning. I'm so glad to see you. Glad that you uh, braved the weather to join us this morning. You should be in Acts chapter 15. And this morning, uh, we come to uh, a pretty key moment in the book of Acts known as the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. It's a pretty famous scene in the early church. And at first read, you might read Acts 15 and think about the problems that they're dealing with and go, man, we've, we've really covered that. We've really dealt with that. No real need to um, rehash this or to learn much about it for our own sake because none of us are really um, gung-ho about making sure everybody's circumcised and following the law of Moses, right? Like that's not our thing. So at first read, you might think there's not really a lot for us here, but there is, there is. If you remember in Acts chapter 11... Uh, back way in the fall semester, we learned about Peter uh, going to visit uh, a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, and he went to the believers in Jerusalem in Acts 11 and shared that when he shared the gospel with Cornelius and his household, they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. And in response, in Acts chapter 11, the believers in Jerusalem said to Peter in verse 18, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It was a huge, huge deal. The floodgates of gospel ministry had been opened, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. So by now we've exposed, uh, we've been exposed to some believers who are trying to get the Gentiles to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses. We've seen that kind of throughout Paul's missionary journey, and we're going to see it very clearly here in Acts 15. So the question that we're going to deal with this morning is not, whether or not Gentiles can be saved. That's not the question in front of us. The question in front of us is, how are the Gentiles saved? That question puts the gospel itself at risk. Because if we get that question wrong, we get salvation wrong. So let's see how the leadership in Jerusalem handled the controversy this morning. We'll see if There's things that we can glean from them in our own day as we think about gospel clarity and the unity of the church, the difference between what it means to be saved and what it means to live in fellowship. These are all questions we'll try to deal with this morning. So Acts 15, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we love you and we are grateful for your grace. We're grateful for your mercies that are new for us today. And Father, I I pray that uh, by the power of your spirit, we might learn Uh, from your word today, what it looks like to know and believe and trust the gospel, to know and believe what it means uh, for anyone to come to faith in Jesus. 
as well as what it looks like to pursue unity and fellowship among our brothers and sisters and among our sister churches in our community. Lord, we know that unity and love and fellowship and peace are markers that display your glory to the world. And so I pray for all of us this morning as we think about this text and as we hear your word being taught, that you would uh, allow us to receive it with grace and be transformed by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first section of our text is really explaining what's going on. So if you're taking notes this morning, number one, verses one through five, is the issue explained. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had just gone on a missionary journey all throughout Asia Minor, and at the end of Acts 14, they returned to the church in Antioch, a largely Gentile church, and were encouraging the brothers and sisters there, were teaching them that all that God had done through them and with them. But we begin our text this morning by saying, there were brothers from Jerusalem who came down and began to teach something different than what Paul and Barnabas had taught. Not only do the Gentiles need faith in Jesus, they said, they also need to be circumcised. They need to receive the covenant sign of Abraham, and they need to follow the law that was given to Moses. Now, it seems maybe so clear to many of us and almost offensive that we would try to add something to the gospel, that we would try to add something to coming to Christ. But before we get so offended so quickly that we lose, to, we lose the ability to listen to what's going on, think about this. These Jewish believers had only known one thing, not just for their whole lives, but for the life of their nation, for hundreds and hundreds of years, if there was no circumcision, there was no covenant. So in their minds and in the lives of the generations that had gone before them, receiving the sign of Abraham was as vital to being in the covenant as anything. Following the law of Moses was as vital to the covenant as anything, but they were failing to see that a new and better covenant had come. So Paul and Barnabas and the church of Antioch recognized that this disagreement about the mechanics of salvation could threaten the unity of the faith. It could threaten the unity between these churches. So the church in Antioch appoints Paul and Barnabas and some others to go to Jerusalem and to get clarity. How is it that we are saved? What are the mechanics of what's going on when we believe the gospel? While many were rejoicing at the work of God among the Gentiles, some, it says, among the party of the Pharisees were sticking to their guns. They're saying, no, you have to have circumcision. You have to follow the law of Moses. Conformity to Judaism is the gateway to the kingdom of God. That was their, that was their idea. And so the question that has to be answered is this. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And that is still a fundamental question for all of us today. Do we really believe that repentance, that is turning from our sins, and faith, that is turning to Christ, do we really believe that that's all there is to do? You turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus. You forsake your sin, and you lean in faith on Christ. Is that all there is? Or do we add cultural, even moral expectations for those who are coming to Christ? Are there people in our community 
that feel like they would be judged rather than loved if they entered your friend group or this youth ministry or our church? These are questions that Acts 15 forces us to ask. How we understand the the way in which someone comes to believe is vitally important. And if we confuse that with what it looks like for them to behave, then that's going to lead us to serious problems. Or if we confuse what they must do to, to believe with what they must do to belong, then we're going to run into some real problems. So how we understand this question should be in our minds as we read through this text to see what the council in Jerusalem, what these brothers will do, uh, how they will decide this together. So let's see the response of some of the important folks that we've already met in the book of Acts. Look at verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. All right, let's stop there. We're looking at Peter and Paul's testimony here in the second section of our text this morning. And by Paul, Paul and Barnabas, but but Paul becomes kind of the major figure in the second half of the book of Acts. Peter, the major figure in the first half of the book of Acts. So after much debate, Luke says, uh, which I don't know what you mean when you say, when you, when you think about much debate, uh, but Luke probably is saying this was This was quite an argument. This was quite a discussion. This was probably very volatile, very passionate, very emotional, because we're thinking about what does it mean to know and be in fellowship with God himself? So after much debate, after all of the controversy, after all the conversation, Peter steps up to remind the people present, hey, you affirmed to me when I told you about the Gentiles coming to Christ by faith, that God had done this, that they came to believe and be saved by hearing and responding to the gospel, not by any other means. They received the spirit just like we received the spirit. And Peter's clear. He says, God has not made a distinction, that there's no longer a distinction in Christ between Jew and Gentile. We're either in Christ or not. Then Peter hits the council with a very sobering warning. By trying to make a distinction, Peter says, they are putting God to the test. They're putting an impossible burden on the Gentiles that no one has been able to bear. And by doing so, they are misunderstanding the law and disrupting the unity of the body of Christ. Now, students, when we make distinctions 
among believers, or when we add law to the gospel, we shatter God's design for displaying his glory and grace. The fact is, no one is saved by the works of the law. No one is saved by their own good deeds. You've heard me say this before. I mentioned it to uh, Auburn Classical Academy, their, their young students this past week. The law of Moses is like an x-ray machine. It reveals what's going on in our hearts. It reveals what's going on in our souls. It reveals what's going on underneath that normally we probably wouldn't be able to see. It doesn't create anything. And it doesn't fix anything either. It reveals. But the problem that the Jews before the time of Christ had made, that the problem that they had introduced is that they thought that the law could be used to fix a problem, not just to diagnose a problem. The law is an x-ray machine, and all it does is reveal our great need. But the good news of the gospel for both Jews and Gentiles, for those under the law and those not under the law, is that regardless of what you have seen, regardless of what has been revealed about your heart up to this point, Jesus is the great physician for all people. And his grace, Peter says, is what saves us. Not the law, but his grace. And we have to get this right. And we have to be majorly clear about how it is that we come to faith, how it is that we come to Christ, how it is that we are saved. It bears repeating over and over because this is the bedrock of our faith and a major component to the unity that we share, not just in this church, but with brothers and sisters in our community and around the world. Like we, we believe alongside Auburn Community Church or Cornerstone or uh, Grace Heritage or Grace Auburn or Parkway or First Baptist Opelika or First Pres Opelika, all these churches, we agree at the very root of all things is, is this. God has made all things and he made his creation good. And he made you and me as image bearers of God. And yet because of the fall, we now live in sin and separation from God. And there is no way that we can have the relationship with God restored apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ and his grace applied to us by faith alone. Like that agreement means I can disagree with our Presbyterian brothers on baptism and I can disagree with Auburn Community Church about some kind of practice or I can disagree with First Baptist Opelika about some kind of mission strategy or philosophy of ministry. But we're on the same team when it comes to the unity that we share as believers. That we can say, that's my brother, that's my sister in the Lord. That we have the same goal, the same vision, the same object of our worship. Paul and Barnabas and Peter recognize that if we get our eyes off of that gospel, then the unity that we think we have will not last. Peter and then Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 show us <clears throat> that God was at work in the lives of the Gentiles. It's plain for everyone to see. God is at work in the lives of the Gentiles. And the encouragement for us today is that he is still at work 
He's also at work in our brothers and sisters here at Lakeview. He's at work in the lives of our brothers and sisters in churches across town or in churches across the state or in churches across the country or in churches across the globe. And for that, we can all rejoice. So how does the council move forward? They've clarified, okay, this is how we are saved. This is how the Gentiles and the Jews are saved. How we move forward with unity. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Or sorry, not not 21, rather. uh, 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Now, Simeon is Peter, just so we're clear. Uh, Simon, Peter, Simeon. To take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, third section of our text this morning is James's judgment. James's judgment. James, the brother of Jesus, and the obvious leader of the church in Jerusalem, agrees with Peter and Paul. He also shows how from the prophets, specifically he quotes Amos and Jeremiah here, that the coming of the Gentiles is no surprise to the Lord and therefore should be no surprise to God's people. From the beginning, God has seen fit to make promises that all the nations will be blessed and that there will be those from every tribe and nation who will be called according to his grace. So now the prophets of old and the apostles of today bear witness to the mechanics of salvation. We come to God through faith in Christ according to his grace. That's how it happens. But that is not all James says. So it's one thing to get clear on how we're saved. It's another thing to get clear on how we live in light of it. Although he writes that nothing should be added to the way of salvation, James says there does need to be an effort at maintaining unity. And that will require certain actions and behaviors from both Jews and Gentiles. So James gives the Gentile believers four things to abstain from. He says to abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from things that had been strangled, and to abstain from blood. Now, some of these were clearly calls to pursue moral purity, like the ban on sexual immorality, right? While Gentile culture often at that time tolerated all kinds of sexual deviance and sin, 
Christians must not partake in that. Just because the culture gives you the green light, that doesn't give you as a Christian a green light because we're held to a higher authority than the culture. So some of these things were moral requirements for unity. Hey, if we're going to be brothers and sisters in the life of this church, you can't be running off headlong into sexual immorality and sin and maintain fellowship and unity here. So some of these were moral calls. Some of these, though, were cultural actions that called for the Gentiles to lay down their liberty for the sake of unity. Think about what James says about food being sacrificed to idols. Hold your place in Acts chapter 15 and find 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to go right back to, to Acts 15. But I want your eyes on 1 Corinthians 8. So James tells the Gentiles, they're going to write a letter and send it to him. And he tells the Gentiles, abstain from things that have been polluted by idols. Like don't eat food that's been polluted by sacrificing to idols. But, but listen to Paul later on in his ministry when he writes this letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about uh, what it is Uh, when we're thinking about food sacrificed to idols. We'll just pick it up in verse four. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's one God, the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So pause there. Paul is saying, Hey, this whole like food sacrifice idol things, it's not real. Like those idols aren't real. So there's not really any thing going on with this food that's going to substantively change it and make it something bad when it was once something good. But let's keep reading. Verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, either the eating of it or the abstaining from it. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge Eating is in an idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Do you hear Paul? in this? Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, and he's saying to you and me, hey, there are things in our culture that we know are okay. 
It's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's okay to go to these places. It's okay to uh, do this sort of thing or to be a part of this sort of activity. We know these things as mature believers, but you need to remember that it's not just you and the mature believers. You are surrounded by other believers, some of whom are not as mature, some of whom are not as knowledgeable, and therefore their consciences are weak. That doesn't give you the right to ridicule them or judge them. It gives you the responsibility to love them and to care for them. And so what Paul is saying is, you know that meat sacrificed to idols is fine. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols because it's not real. But if I'm in a context where brothers and sisters might see that and it lead their consciences to stumble and sin against God, then I'm going to abstain from that liberty. I'm going to lay that liberty down for the sake of unity and fellowship among the believers around me. Now back to Acts 15. When James tells the believers in Antioch, the Gentile believers, to abstain from food being sacrificed to idols, this is what he's getting at. He's not saying that no Christian ever should eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's saying, what can we tell these Gentile believers to promote and preserve and even, and even grow Christian unity? Because that's what we want. More than being able to exercise our liberty, we want to live in unity. And sometimes living in unity means giving up certain liberties. That leads us to just consider for a moment this question. What are you willing to put aside for the sake of unity here? Like what things do you do that you're willing to give up for the sake of unity here? That doesn't mean that we don't try to grow in knowledge. That doesn't mean that we don't try to grow in maturity, both as individuals and as a youth ministry and as a church. We're, we're constantly growing. We're constantly having our minds renewed and reformed to the truth of God's word. But in the meantime, what are you willing to set aside? What are you willing to lay down for the sake of unity? And how do you think the Gentile believers will respond to this call? Let's, let's read. We got to run, got to go quick. Here we go. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us, and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is fourth section, the letter of unity. James gets this letter written. They send brothers from both Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to deliver this letter. And the Gentile believers were encouraged. They rejoiced at this letter. They weren't burdened by this letter. It established that they were believing the same gospel. It called on the Gentile believers to let their conduct promote unity, even if that meant laying down some liberties in their context. But they did not receive that as a burden. They were encouraged by the letter. And Judas and Silas, brothers sent from Jerusalem, taught and encouraged the church even further. Isn't that beautiful? Like, isn't that so sweet to see that brothers and sisters who at once were at disagreement now have been reconciled according to the truth and for the sake of love and pursuing fellowship and peace and unity get to live that way? It just reminds me of the providence of God as we consider our own lives, especially living in a college town, right? Because the reality is for many of you, you won't stay here forever, And so you're going to go to a church that isn't Lakeview and be a minister of reconciliation and peace, an ambassador of the glory of Christ somewhere else to another body of believers. And for virtually all of you, either through table leaders on Sunday mornings or through equipping groups on Wednesday nights, you are the beneficiaries of brothers and sisters from other churches who have come here. And it's that fellowship, that unity that we have with our churches as we send and receive brothers and sisters growing together in the grace of God that leads to a flourishing of unity. But just because the church had weathered this threat of disunity doesn't mean more threats won't come. So let's keep reading. Verse 36. After some days, Paul Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Last section, maybe not expected in this text, separation for a time. Separation for a time. As we finish Acts 15, we recognize that the desertion of John Mark was a great challenge for the work of Paul and Barnabas a few chapters ago. And even though they were apostles and missionaries, it seems like they could not agree on how to move forward together, so they parted ways. Luke calls it a sharp disagreement. We're not sure of the details. It seems like Paul believed John Mark's previous action in Acts 13 revealed a character issue that kept him from wanting to bring him along for another mission. All we know is that they did not leave for their second mission together, but separate. Barnabas took John Mark to Cyprus. Paul took Silas to Syria, Cilicia, and other places. Now their work remained the same. Paul and Barnabas both went to strengthen and encourage the churches. Their use by God was still there. 
But the best answer to maintaining unity in their mission was to serve in separate places. And that's difficult for us to think about at times, that that maybe the best thing for a certain group or a certain set of individuals is to minister separate rather than together. But that separation did not extend into a lifelong rivalry or grudge. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just one chapter later from what we read earlier, uh, Paul commends the ministry of Barnabas. So they obviously are keeping up with each other. And Paul says so much to the Corinthians as to commend the work that Barnabas continues to do. Now, history tells us, and the New Testament tells us, that Mark uh, becomes a close associate of Peter. In the end of 1 Peter, uh, he calls Mark his son, in the same way that Paul might call Timothy his son in the faith. And that close association between Mark and Peter leads to, whether you know this or not, surprise, surprise, the writing of the Gospel of Mark. I mean, Mark is John Mark who is sitting at the feet of Peter going, tell me the story of Jesus. And he's writing this down and we get this as the second gospel in our New Testament, the gospel of Mark. But Paul also thought highly of John Mark later in his ministry. We see this most clearly in 2 Timothy near the end of Paul's life. Paul's in prison, going to be killed in a very short time. And as he ends the letter to Timothy, this is what he writes in 2 Timothy 4. You don't have time to turn there, but just... In verse 9, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is alone with me. Here's the point. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Here's the point. We may not see eye to eye with every other Christian or every other church. But the unity of the church is at stake. So may we be the kind of believers who practice wisdom when we need to separate, but also hold out hope for reconciliation and for restoration. It happened for Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, and by God's grace, it can happen for you and anyone else. This is the good news of the gospel, that it doesn't just bring us To Christ, it brings us together. And so I pray that as we move into our time of discussion, we might think about that that interplay between the mechanics of salvation and pursuing unity together.